Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Thank you. Father, we have been uh, thinking for the last few weeks um, about your nature. We have been thinking and reflecting on the way that you reveal yourself to us as one God in three. Um, And it is difficult for us to get our minds to wrap themselves around that thought um, because you are so far above and beyond what we could comprehend in any sort of fullness. And God, I pray that you would help us now as we've thought about these truths, as we've reflected on uh, Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, that you would help us now think together um, about uh, the relevance of that, what that means in terms of application and how we are to live in light of those truths. So please do assist now, um, guide our thoughts, and and I pray that we would would think uh, productively about that. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so as I've basically just prayed, we're um, finishing up our study this week on the Trinity that we've been talking about for about the last five weeks now. And we've been using Bruce Ware's book on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, I'm hoping that today, we have a small group, so it's probably kind of good for that, that it would be a little bit more interactive. I have some questions, uh, so hopefully you won't have to hear me talk quite as much and if you don't say anything we're probably going to have about 25 minutes worth of silence because I don't I don't have quite that much material but I have some questions hopefully some feedback will will get us thinking about this together um, but as we as we talk about the last uh, chapter in this book and the last lesson trying to wrap things together I think it would be helpful helpful for us to to kind of get in the mindset just do a kind of quick review and a recap of what we have talked about kind of tie all the strings together and to see the arguments that the author has been building in the book and then the arguments that he he uses those arguments to say, now this is why it's important. So we've been studying the truths and then now we seek to make the application of it. So back in chapter one, um, the topic was introduced to us um, of of the Trinity. And let me ask, how many have uh, have actually read the book? Point of... Okay, good. Then it'll all be new. But um, have you guys have you guys ever studied the Trinity in the past in any particular sense? Any other books that you've read? Um, I know my own experience. Typically, when I've studied the Trinity, it's been from the perspective of apologetics, seeking to defend the truth. And I've, so it's sort of an interesting angle. The author has a, a different angle that he's trying to take us uh, to consider this truth from. He's not so much trying to defend it that God exists as a trinity, but to say it's almost assumed. I mean, he, granted, there are verses that have been uh, presented. We've read passages that, that do prove that it is indeed true, but much of it is assumed as we read the book because he wants to kind of move us beyond that, I think, to think to think of the fact of uh, here is the trinity, this is how God exists, and to, to study in particular um, how God and the trying persons relate to one another, how they relate, how the persons of the Trinity relate to us, and then also to, to ask the question, which is what we're going to speak about today, what's the relevance of that? And so that's the, the subtitle for the book is important, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. And that's, that's been the structure of how, how uh, we've been studying this so far. Um, 
in chapter 2, sort of just a historical grounding as to how we came to articulate this doctrine, that we recognize that God has been revealing himself throughout history, that it's been unfolding, that it's been progressive. Um, and then, so that's, that, that chapter was just a historical grounding of how we became, came to, to know that and understand it. Uh, and then in chapters 3 through 5, and this is basically the end of my review, we've looked at each particular person. We looked at the Father one week, we looked at the Son another week, and we looked at the Holy Spirit. We recognize some of the truths there that we, we talked about was that the, there's, a, there's a hierarchy structure, so to speak. Um, the, the Father is said to be supreme. The Son is said to be submissive or is communicated to us as being submissive. The goal of the Son being to make the Father known. And then when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we see that there's a subservient role there, and his goal is to make Christ known. And very much related to this, the way so that's the way they relate to one another in that sort of a, a hierarchy scheme. But then also related to that in the way that they relate to us and the roles that they carry out as they relate to us. And so the scriptures describe to us that the Father is the architect and the designer of the plans. Typically, that's, those, are, those are attributed to him specifically. And then we typically see that it's the Son carrying out the Father's will. And then the Spirit sustaining that work and then making application of it. And we see this in creation. That God, this is how God has worked in creation. We see this um, in redemption, both in our justification and in our sanctification. We see the Father uh, is the one who sends the Son. It, it seems to be it's His plan. It, the, the plan is attributed to Him, and it's the Son that therefore goes and is obedient and dies on the cross. And then it's the Spirit, not only in, also empowering the Son, but then also beyond that, making the application of the work of Christ on our behalf. Um, so these are some of the truths that we've been thinking about as we've thought about the various persons in a trinity and we've discussed the, their relationship to one another and their roles to us. And so as I said, now today we're focusing on this third aspect of the book and the relevance and asking the question basically how the doctrine of the trinity should influence the way that we live. And so we're, we're focusing at the application level. Um, now I know that you guys know this, but truth in a general sense is meant to be applied. God hasn't designed knowledge for knowledge's sake. So knowledge is intended to make us think differently, intended to make us act differently, intended to make us feel differently. And this holds true in a general sense. And that's one reason why asking the question about application is important as we talk about the Trinity. But there is a more specific reason, I think, as to why we need to ask the question and talk about application in regard to the teaching about the Trinity um, that's more specific. Um, and to kind of get us thinking in that direction, let me ask for somebody to read a verse. And, I'm, and you guys kind of keep your Bibles handy because now that I've said what I had to say, we're going to get a little bit more interactive. Um, can I get somebody to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27? And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So what does that verse teach us about ourselves? 
This isn't brain science. <laughs> what is? What is? I'm just asking for some feedback here. We'll start out slow. What, what does the verse teach us about ourselves? That we're made in God's image. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Any suggestions or thoughts on that? End? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Communication. Okay, God has communication and fellowship within himself. Um, any other thoughts or ideas? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Man's original righteousness. Original righteousness. Okay, so Adam, before the fall, was made like God. In some sense, there was a, a sinlessness and a, a sense of perfection, so to speak. What else might that mean? Authority. Authority. Okay. Yeah. So specifically in the context there, when, when, when God says, let us make man in our image, what's automatically given to him in that context is that he is to rule and have dominion and have authority over the earth. So what else? Anything else that it means to be? I've never thought of it like this before. God says, um, Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> capable of embodying God's communicable attributes. Yeah. So he possessed the character of God. So in some sense, to be made in God's image is to be like God. And and basically the things that we've just talked about. And people have suggested many different things. There have been numbers, numerous books written about what it means to be in the image of God. Um, people have said that it means that we have intellectual abilities, the, the ability to reason, that this is something that the animals don't have, but God has this and he's given that to us. Um, the ability to make moral choices, we can choose between right and wrong. Um, creative abilities, that the way that God designs and creates things, we, we see reflections of that in the way that we design and create things, not from nothing, but from what exists. Um, dominion over the earth, as we said, authority. And I think all of those are true. Um, but I want to get beyond, beyond that. Um, Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, and I consulted it because typically his definitions are pretty concise and accurate, but he says that the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God. That's what we've been discussing. But, but what I want to point out is beyond that, it said that um, the fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God, but that also he represents God. So Ware makes the same point in the book, and I think that's an accurate um, point to make. He says that the image of God in us has to do primarily with how we are to live our lives as God's representatives. So in all the creation, it's man, men and women, who are given the task of representing God, uh, reflecting God on earth. Um, We are his representatives. And so I want to suggest something to you that God tells us, you got to follow my reasoning here. God tells us that we're made in his image. And then that means, as I've just said, or I've made the case, that God intends for us to represent him. Now, to get more specific, God describes himself as existing in Trinity, as three persons, 
And we've been talking about how those three persons relate to each other. We've been talking about how those three persons relate to us and their roles. And so if that's how he describes himself, and it says that we're in his image, then I think that that means that at least in some sense, God intends for us to represent him as Trinity. That, to say it another way, um, that the Trinity is not just some lofty, abstract, theological thought that has no relation to life, but that rather our lives are intended to model God's Trinitarian nature. God has purposed um, that as we live, we communicate his likeness. Among that, what it means, what his likeness, how he describes himself in his triune nature. Um, that's supposed to be represented through us. Does that make sense? Anybody have any objections to that? <laughs> well, I'm a little confused. The definition that, that Josh used is that we can reflect God's communicable. Communicable. Attributes. The trying nature, I don't, other than the fact that marriage represents the relationship between two persons. Yeah. And that, that are made one, you know, in that small way. I guess I'm saying that it's, that it's probably both. I hear, in Grudem's de- definition, I hear him saying that we can be, to be made in God's image means that we are like him in those communicable attributes, the things in which we can be in common, but that also we're to represent him um, as best we can on the earth in the way that he has described himself. But that's part of wrapped up what, what it means. Now, obviously, we can't represent God totally in ourselves as triune. We're not triune beings. But... I see the the relationship structure there, I think, becomes patterns for the various relationships we have. And so the direction I'm going just kind of is to say, okay, so now we've discussed the the Trinity and how God relates to himself, how God relates to us. And so now let's ask the questions. What are the lessons to be applied and and what what lessons do we take from that in, in the way that we relate to one another based on the way God relates to us and the way God relates to himself and then also what lessons do we take from that in the way that we relate to God so that's kind of how I've how I've broken it up and I mean in the chapter he, um, where it just lists like 10 reasons or lessons that we should take from the study and, and and I'm kind of organizing them into two different categories trying to make it simpler in my mind and I've kind of struggled to to get a grapple on this and organize it in a way that that makes sense but um I do think that there's some sense in which the Trinity becomes a pattern. Uh, that's the relevance end of it, because I don't think God... I mean, that's who he is, and he's, he's interested in us understanding him for who he is. But the fact that we're made in his image, I think there, there's probably, um, in, at least in some sense, uh, a way that that's supposed to be reflected through us and the way that we relate to one another. So, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on that from the elders? <laughs> Yeah. No. Not possible for me. Stealing my points, man. <laughs> no, I mean that's that's exactly. 
Yeah, that's exactly where I'm exactly where I'm going. So maybe maybe I'll just kind of continue in that direction, and then any any questions that that spurs, maybe we can kind of talk about as we go, or at the end specifically. So, um, but so I said I've kind of organized some of what he said in this last chapter into two different categories. First, the lessons to be applied and how I relate to and view others. Um, and three things in particular that I wanted to communicate there. One of them, Stan was just talking about the fact that God uh, exists as Trinity um, shows that he is a relational and a personal being. There's an a interrelationship. Uh, I forget the word that, um, that where makes up a word kind of for that, that there's a so interrelationality there in the person of God. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they communicate to one another, with one another. They love one another. They honor one another. They enjoy one another. And in terms of application, if we're made in God's image, what might that mean for us in the way that uh, if we're in God's image, how then are we designed? If God's relational, what, what would that mean for us that, that we're also to be relational beings? Um, and so, I mean, this is not new information. I'm not, there's no aha moments probably this morning. But just to kind of organize these things and to see why, why they're important is that we're not designed um, to live in isolation. Um, some of us, that's a, that's a struggle. For me, it's a struggle. I would much rather, I think, just kind of exist by myself. But I'm not designed for that purpose. And so that's an area that I'm struggling through and trying to, to see how much I need other people in my life. That um, We're designed to be interconnected. We're designed to be interdependent on one another. Now, God modeled this in creation in a specific way what was it? what in creation um, did God do that showed to us that we're relational beings and Stan just mentioned it a minute ago the fact that he created Adam and Eve, and Eve. so are you being sarcastic <laughs> take a time out but <laughs> um just the, just the fact that God established... <laughs> bear with me, folks. Um, I know. Yeah. I'm looking for the eggs coming in. Um, the fact that God created man and woman and that he established the institution of marriage shows that he modeled that there's a pattern there that there needs to be uh, relational. But the issue that we have to deal with is that unlike God who's perfect in that relationship and there's a completeness in that relationship that there's a there's a problem for us there's a breakdown because we're sinful we're fallen and so unlike god we're imperfect and we need others because we ourselves are lacking so you, you don't see that same pattern in god god's not lacking but yet he exists in relationships and he says that that's good i mean the fact that that's how God exists, it's good. And so that pattern carries over to us. Now, let me just, um, for some feedback here. Biblically speaking, why are relationships important for us? Oops, we're reading, uh, you know, if you finish reading the book that C.J. Mahaney wrote, mm-hmm. uh, as with Emily, and one of the things that we were reading about last night was how important relationships are, kind of for what I was talking about in this moment, in that I just can't see my own sin. Yeah. I need people around me. I'm walking around with cream cheese on my face <laughs> all the time, and I'm, I just can't see my own sin. So I need other people to point that out yeah. to help me in that regard. I think part of that comes from the Trinity. You have a 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pointing to and revealing who the other person is. Mm-hmm. And so in our in our state as it is, at, in Adam and Eve, they had God pointing and had Adam and Eve to each other, pointing and saying, Look, this is who you are. You know, Adam and Eve, you're beautiful, you're my wife, etc. As we are now, we exist in a Trinitarian relationship with each other that we point to each other and reveal who we are to each other as a mirror. We act as mirrors to each other. Which is not good thing. I mean, right. it's, it's not like it's revealing anything good about ourselves. Right, it's not, but that's a, some way in which the, the Trinity yeah. relationship still exists within us. That's a good point. And so that's why we need the Trinity in order to see that. Okay. That pattern. Tom? Certainly, yeah. So, so for the tape, Tom said that spiritual gifts are uh, to be relational. So we don't see, you know, God gifting us so that we can go and live in isolation and use our gift privately. It, the gift, the Spirit gives us gifts for what purpose? So that we could use it to benefit and build up the body together. Um, Roy, did you have a? So in terms of giftedness and roles and function, to, to kind of work together. Yeah, and <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that actually in a few minutes as well. I have some verses here that... Um, if I can get, I think, one, two, six people, six different verses, so we can read a variety here. Um, can I get somebody over there to read Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen? How about you, Roy? And uh, Stan, would you mind reading John thirteen, thirty-four? Uh, somebody here. Galatians six, two. I see in your eyes. <laughs> uh, Colossians three, sixteen. Somebody over here. Uh, Hebrews ten, twenty-four through twenty-five. And then one more. Let me read James five sixteen. These are just a, a number of verses. Uh, I think that point out uh, additional reasons in the scriptures why relationships are important. Um, that we need to. Well, we'll see what the scriptures say. <laughs> you want to read that out loud for us? So one man sharpens another, and it's simply what Paul mentioned. You know, there's a, that accountability, that building up, and that sharpening of one another. Um, stand, John, 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the, the model that Scripture lays out for us is, as God has loved us and related to us, it says that we are then to go and love one another. So one of the purposes of having a relationship with one another is that we love one another. Galatians. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're, we're going to struggle in this life. There will be hardships and so we're supposed to commanded to 
that's a sense of encouraging one another to bear one of those burdens. Um, Colossians three sixteen. Uh, sorry. <laughs> yes, sir. So we teach, we admonish one another. Uh, Hebrews 10. Let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So when we get weary and we begin to slip back to encourage, to press one another along, and then James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Um, We see this within the church. We have a great opportunity to do this, and um, which is one of the reasons why God has, I think, designed that we exist as a community. That we we would fulfill all these different one another's of the scriptures together. Um, Just the fact that we are to be relational beings. and so let us, I guess, just let this be a reminder to us of the importance of, of what that means and that pattern we see in the Trinity. And uh, I know personally that if I'm not intentional about it, that it, it just simply won't happen. And so I guess just a word of encouragement to, to be intentional about interacting with one another and confessing our sins to one another and all these other various things. So spent a lot of time there. Um, secondly, moving along. As we look at God in the Trinity, as he exists in the Trinity among the persons, we see that there's a unity and a diversity that exists, that they coexist within the Trinity. Um, there's a unity in essence that God is, uh, equal. there's an equality among the persons, there's a oneness, there's a, a unity in the purpose and the work that they accomplish. You know, there aren't, there's not divided interests, but then also that there's a diversity, and primarily we see that in a distinction of the roles that they, um, that they assume. And we'll come back to that. But I guess just consider in a general sense how the the fact that unity and diversity can both coexist. We we sort of think of them as they can't be at the same time. But there's a unity and a a diversity coexisting without conflict or jealousy or divided interests. Um, But, again, when we try to apply that to ourselves, we recognize that we're fallen. And so I think that there are two sinful tendencies that we fall into, uh, one of them being that if we take unity to the extreme and go off in this direction, what ends up happening is that we neglect the diversity. Um, And so we all seek to be the same. We all um, don't recognize and enjoy our God-given differences and distinctions in the way that God has made us. Now, where do we see, like, can you think of an example of, of... a movement or anything like that where you see that happening where the distinctions that God has designed in us are suppressed and everyone wants to be the same. Does anything come to mind? Movement? Any movements or <laughs> feminism. That's kind of what immediately came to my mind. That God has created this diversity among men and women 
And yet, when we fail to recognize that and we take unity to the extreme over here, we begin to see um, that there's a, there's a neglect of that diversity. It's not prized and cherished in the way that God has designed it to be. Um, now, taking in the opposite direction, another error or tendency, I think, in our sinfulness um, in terms of the unity and diversity is that we, we take diversity to the extreme and we neglect the unity. And can you think of any examples of what might happen when we, when we do that? When we... Um, this question makes sense. Tolerate everything. Um, if we take diversity to the extreme, yeah. We neglect unity that we might tolerate everything. Um, I, d- I hadn't thought in that specifically in that direction. But also, um, I guess what I was thinking of was discrimination um, based on sex or race or socioeconomic status. That if we just, um, if we don't see a, a unifying element in creation, the fact that we're all made in God's image, for instance, then we might be tempted to neglect that and focus on differences and so divide. And we see that happening. Um, I'm not sure how helpful that was to, to think of in that, in that framework, but that's the way that. Values, yeah. And just yeah, throw morality out the window. There's no there's no sense of standards right. of right and wrong. Right. Everybody kind of creates their own categories. Yeah. So that's a good point. Um, on that same thought there just kind of thinking of areas in, of application in, in specific um, to stimulate our thinking, I guess, a little bit, that uh, we see that within the Trinity, that balance of unity and diversity there, um, unity of essence and then a diversity of di- distinctions and roles. And I think that that plays out in the different spheres of our life, at work, uh, in our family, uh, in the church. And so, I mean, think... Think at work, for instance, when you go to work, what might happen just on a practical level um, that if everybody um, everybody wants to do something different and they don't want to work toward a, a common cause. I mean, think of it. If it's a production kind of oriented job, if everybody wants to do something else, then nothing's going to get accomplished at the end of the day because they're not working together. Or if everybody wants to do the same thing, there's an unhealthy competition and it, Again, nothing's going to get done because they're not they're not working on the different things that need to be accomplished. And so that's just kind of a practical level. You know, we see that being fleshed out in in real life. Um, but then also within our homes and in a family, um, I mean, what problems result when a mom and dad have their own agendas when they're not unified in purpose? They're I mean, biblically, what's our purpose as, as parents to or as a husband? Um, you know, to glorify God with with the relationship there. Um, but if mom or dad have their own agenda, 
and they're going off doing their own thing and they're seeking their own selfish desires instead of what God has ordained to be the desires of a father or a husband, what 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 happens? I mean, divisiveness, fights. Not, not properly being modeled right and wrong. Um, chaos, divorce, I mean, you, you name it. I mean, you can think of things there. Um, but then what, what, what could it look like if there was a common goal, if there was a, a unity, and not only that, but a unity recognizing that the man and the woman are created differently, and that's God's design. So so we can see, and the point I'm trying to draw out is say, in the Trinity, there's a unity and diversity coexisting, and in other spheres of our life, in the family and in the church and at work, these things are purposeful. That there needs to be a good balance of both of them. So, and that's healthy. That's that's mimicking the pattern, I guess, to say what we see happening within the relationship of God, so that a a, a man and a woman can complement one another instead of conflict one another. They can use the differences to work together for the common good. And so there's that balance of unity and diversity. We see this also in the church. Um, that as as Roy said earlier, there's a different giftedness. Um, among us, you know, all the, the analogies of the scriptures describe us as a body, one body, there's a unity, but there's a diversity, there's different giftedness and different parts and different functions. So it's kind of what I'm trying to draw out of it and hope that's clear. Is that these things flesh themselves out in real life in the way that we relate to one another. So thirdly, the way that we relate to one another, we see in the Trinity that, um, and this is basically just a specific of what we've just talked about there's an authority and a submission structure um and we've talked about this in weeks past i think kevin um, talked about the most the two most specific examples of this and essentially he stole my material but he did a good job (laughs) describing it so i can't blame him for that um but he talked about how we see this authority submission structure we have the father being supreme and then we have um, the Son seeking to glorify the Father, submitting to the Father, obeying the Father. And we have the Spirit in a subservient, kind of behind-the-scenes role, seeking to glorify the Son. And so there's this authority and submission structure that God says is good. I mean, that's how He is. Um, and then we see that carried out in marriage. Um, husbands and wives fulfilling different roles and such. We see that carried out within the church with leaders and congregations. Um, God has given certain men, qualified men, uh, a role that he hasn't given to the other men in the church, that he hasn't given to women in the church. This is his design. We, we see this specifically in 1 Timothy, um, where in chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority of a, over a man. So there are limitations placed on who can be leaders in God's church. And then that's chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, there are further limits set. Uh, uh, only qualified men, it's not all men, qualified men who are self-controlled and respectable and manage their household well and that list of qualifications. I know we've, we've went there in the past, so I won't, I won't spend a lot of time right there. Um, and then Hebrews, somebody read Hebrews 13, 17, because we see this, uh, the interplay of this design specifically in the church there.
have to give an account. But then do this with joy and not with groaning, so that would be of no advantage to you. So there's a there's a submission required of the congregation to obey, to submit, and it's even said how to do that with joy. And then there's also the leadership have a responsibility. What is to what? To watch over the souls. And so there is that authority and submission coexisting. And that's that's a pattern after what we see in the Trinity. And it's purposeful. God's designed it to be that way. Um, but those are the church and home are two specific examples that we talk about often. But those are not the only patterns of authority and submission that we see. What are some other patterns or structures of authority and submission that we see uh, biblically or employers so the the government anything else come to mind all you parents with big families children there's a there's the same structure there with the parent over the child um, various verses <laughs> it does exist. Exists not supposed to though. <laughs> not not something that God necessarily has designed, but yet we see it. And so it's important that the the God ordained structures be emphasized that the family, that the father be teaching and, and leading the children so that those other outside influences and the wrong influences are not taking uh getting more attention um so in ephesians chapter 6 children are said to obey their father and their mother but then fathers likewise are commanded what to not provoke their children um to discipline them and then we see that later in chapter 6 of ephesians as uh, paul said uh, the boss and the worker relationships and the context there that's speaking of masters and slaves but I think that the principle there general holds true in terms of our work do you have a question? you're just kind of stretching <laughs> what's that? Uh, I was just thinking um, in relation to if you look at the relationship between Paul and Timothy and there's an authority and submission so maybe outside of like the marriage covenant and government status and things like that within the body of Christ there's Recognized leaders and certainly, and that's modeled. Young women, yeah. Another emphasis on why it's important to be involved relationally with one another. So. I spent all my time, basically we're, we're out of time here, um, I spent all my time speaking specifically of the lessons to be applied as a way we relate to one another, but just real quickly let me just give you the two that I had for how the Trinity ought to influence the way that we relate to God. Um, I was going to speak specifically about worship and prayer. Um, that the, the Trinity is, is involved in both of those uh, ways that we relate to God because um, each person of the Trinity is involved in some aspect of worship so that we see the Spirit of God empowering us to worship, inciting us to worship the Son. But then the Son, his goal, uh, in, in this is particularly in the book of John, Gospel of John, the Son's goal is to worship the Father, to glorify the Father. And so we kind of see that 
hierarchy working itself out in terms of how we approach God and how we worship him, but then also in prayer that we're commanded to, who are we commanded to pray to? Pray to the Father. But then how do we have access to the Father? Because why would God want to hear rebels? Why do you want to listen to us? And the scriptures tell us that it's because of the work of Christ. And so Christ is the mediator between God and man. So God hears our prayers. The door is opened. But then we have a problem beyond that, even though, I mean, it's as if the the door is open and we're pushed before the king, but we're left speechless. What do we say? And so the spirit, it says in Romans chapter 8, we don't know what to pray. And so the spirit intercedes for us on our behalf. And so within worship and within prayer, we see the different persons of the Trinity um, working in us so that we relate to God properly. So that's quick, and I had a bunch of verses, and I totally ran out of time. But just some something to think about. And my whole objective today, hopefully it's been beneficial at least in some sense, is just to get us thinking the fact that um, we need to try to make application of the truths that we've been learning. In general, everything we read, and in specific... I just wanted to, to, to chime in because there was an encouragement to see how God has ordained our institutions, whether it's with government or in families or in the church, that there's a there's nothing that, that submission is a good thing. Yeah. You know, that someone in a leadership role is a good thing. But I just wanted to articulate how easy it is for sinful man to pervert that and want to be worshipped, want to be valued and rob God of his glory in the sense that when Paul said to the Corinthians that they were that he was a servant on their behalf for Christ's sake, that here's the apostle, not I think that was one of the reasons that he had to, he had trouble defending himself, because we have a tendency to go, you know, that guy's cool, that's good, that guy's strong, he's a strong leader. We don't necessarily gravitate to servants who, were real, who really have a heart of service. So yeah. fathers who really want to lead their families have to have a view of servanthood. Even though it's an authoritative way with the child, if, if they don't see the good of the child at the end of what they're trying to accomplish, yeah. it's for not, and it's not godly. And when a leader of a church you know, is up teaching, if his goal is not to build up the, the body, to give them more of a, a picture or a passion for Christ and pursuit of Christ's likeness, then he's glorifying himself, and it's and, it, and it's for not. Yeah. And not not that you don't believe all those things, but it's just a you know it's a real it's just it's broken in a, in a lot of places. Yeah, that's a good reminder for all of us. I mean, and that's you know the emphasis there that we need to follow the pattern of authority that God demonstrates. It, you know. Even though the Father is in that position of authority, obviously he's perfect, so he is drawing glory to himself. But you see him also glorifying the Son. You see him also glorifying the Spirit. I'm not sure if I can think of an example for that, but um, you see that. And so, yeah, that, that pattern holds true in all those different areas. That leadership must be loving. It must have the goal of building up the other. Uh, and that's what exists perfectly in the Trinity, but we totally pervert that in our sinfulness. Any other questions, and then we'll close. I know we're too late. Thank you guys for some interaction this morning. Let's pray.
God is off. It is difficult um, for us to know how to apply the truths that we encounter in the scriptures. God, we thank you that we are not left alone to that task, but that even there, um, your existence as Trinity um, comes into play, that you and your spirit teach us, you lead us into truth, uh, you draw us to worship the Son, and the Son ultimately worships you. For that, we give you thanks. Please do continue to teach us from the scriptures. Please continue to enable us, empower us by your spirit to make proper application. God, that we would bring you honor, that we would represent consistently um, what it is to be made in your image and what it is to be children of God, what it is to exist under the lordship of Christ. Um, Do help us now um, to be consistent. Help us this week to make application as we are in positions of authority to do so lovingly, as we are in positions of uh, submission to do so joyfully and looking to honor those who are over us. Um, Help us to fulfill these roles, to see them as good in the way that you see them as good, in the way that they exist in goodness and fullness and completion in you. Um, Strengthen us for that task. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at the Best Western on the corner of college and university.